morning, church. This week, we are continuing our sermon series on the kingdom of God. And when we began this sermon series, we began more with a Bible study, and we tried to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God? Because when you read the scriptures, Jesus comes preaching, he says, repent, turn from sin, because the kingdom of God is at hand. But any casual reader of the Gospels will notice nobody questions Jesus on what this means. Nobody says, stop, Rabbi, what kingdom, what are you talking about, what's this all about? They seem to have an understanding. And we examined scripture and we concluded that the kingdom of God is centered around the four big P's. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place to fulfill God's promises. Power, people, place, promise. If you ever remember anything about the kingdom of God, it's around those four P's. And the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will last forever. For the kingdom of God, as we read in Daniel... The stone carved not by human hands will come and will destroy the kingdom of darkness and all earthly powers. So only our good and faithful king will remain to rule the universe, him and him alone. Countries as we know it won't exist. There won't be any sin. It's going to be perfect because our perfect king and his perfect kingdom will be filled with his then perfected people and a perfected earth. But last week, we shifted gears from defining the kingdom to then asking the question, well, what is the kingdom of God actually like? What's the kingdom of God like? And so we turned our attention to the parables, short stories that conceal truth. And you'll notice as we go through the parables, all the parables will touch on the four Ps somehow. And the parable of the sower last week exclusively dealt with people, what the people of the kingdom are supposed to be like. Fruit bearers. We're supposed to grow, bear fruit, be more like God, that type of idea. And this week, our parable, which will be out of Matthew 18 if you want to turn ahead. This week, our parable picks up near the end of a chapter that deals thematically with sin and offensives. And our reading begins with the Apostle Peter. He comes and he asks Jesus after talking about sin and offenses. Peter asks Jesus this question, a serious question, and it's in line with the rest of the chapter. He goes, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I'm to forgive him? Seven times? And his question is one we've all faced, whether we've worded it like that or not. But what are you supposed to do with a repeat offender who just keeps wronging you? How do you deal with people who just keep hurting you, whether it's a spouse, a child, a boss, coworker, whatever? What do you do do with that? They just keep wronging you. What do you do? When When is enough enough? When can you just be done with that? When can I stop forgiving and just get rid of those people in my life? We've all faced that type of question. And Jesus answers Peter. He answers him straightforwardly and honestly. He says, I do not say to you seven times, Peter, but I say to you 77 times. And this idea of forgiving 77 times is not a literal number, clearly, but it expresses the idea that we are to forgive continually. Christians are to forgive continually and constantly, sincerely. And then Jesus tells the following parable, which is our sermon text this morning. And this parable is to explain the why. Why are Christians to forgive constantly? Why do we have to do this when the hurt can be so real and so bad? And if you've been married, have kids, lived life, you know people can hurt you really bad. Or you can hurt people really bad. We all have, we all will, we all do. We've all faced this question. And Jesus' response is constantly. You must forgive constantly. And then he tells us this parable. So if you can and are willing, please stand for the reading and hearing the word of the one true God. 
Matthew 18, 21 to 35. The word of the living God says this. Then Peter came up and said to him, talking to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to whom who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant, the king, released him and forgave him the debt. Oh, no. Oh, no. Where's the emergency generators? Well, that's okay. You can still hear. If you feel the need to sit for safety's sake, no one will fault you. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. Your word was read out loud. Pray that you'd give us ears to hear, a mind to understand, and a heart willing to obey. Holy Spirit, you say that you use the word to sanctify us, change us, build us up, make us more like Christ, make us fruitful. Do this this morning because if you don't help us now, if you don't change us now, we can't change ourselves. Help us. Be with us. Glorify Christ this morning. And we ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Just as a quick note, sound people, are we still thumbs up? Can we keep going? Great. All right. So, the question, back to it. Why must Christians forgive continually, perfectly, sincerely? This idea of 77 times. Parable was told. And the answer, which is the meaning of the parable and our main point this morning, the reason why we need to forgive continually is this. It's because the kingdom of God is of mercy and forgiveness. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of mercy and forgiveness. And mercy and forgiveness are only possible, church, when there is a sense of real justice. Mercy is not real if justice is not real. And justice is what our God King is all about. It's a part of who he is, and that's our first preaching point. Our God King is just. The King of the kingdom is a just king. And this parable begins with the king settling accounts with his servants. 
which represents in its fullness how the rest of Scripture describes our God King, the one true God, as the judge of the universe, the one who settles accounts with his servants, his created beings. Because a part of God being God is that he judges his creation. He has the right to do so. He alone is the final arbiter or the final judge of good and of evil. And each person that ever has been and ever will be will stand before the throne of God to give an account for who they are and what they've done in this life. It's throughout the whole Bible. And Revelation gives us in great, great, this great vision of John when he pulls back the curtain and lets John see in the spirit what actually happens. We see this judgment. Revelation 20 describes this final judgment as where it says the dead, the great and the small, will stand before the throne of God to be judged according to what they had done. There is a real sense of judgment and justice. And this is, this is good news because it reveals to us the goodness of God. God hates sin. He hates evil. He's going to destroy it. It has no place in his eternal kingdom. Evil can't be in God's presence. Even the, I forgot what prophet it is. It's just off the top of my head. But it says God doesn't even like look on evil. He hates it that much. Sin, rebellion, all that stuff is, is opposite of God's very character in nature. He does not tolerate it forever. For a season he does. But when we die and stand before him individually, and at the very end, when Jesus delivers up the kingdom, it says, there's going to be this final reckoning. And we're all going to face it. Whatever that fully looks like. It's good news because in his justice, our God King will destroy all wickedness forever. It will not remain. That's really great news. And that's part of our Christian hope about the kingdom of God destroying the darkness, destroying all the earthly powers. As we said and reiterate, it's our hope. Think about it. The kingdom of God in all of its fullness, there will be no more things like abortion. There will be no more rape. There will be no more divorce. No more children being beaten and hurt and molested. Like fill in the blank. No more murder. No more car accidents where loved ones die. Stuff like that. No more bankruptcy. No more foreclosures. Whatever it is, suffering, that's going to be gone away with. The former things will pass and only new things will remain. And that's our hope. That's good news. God's going to get rid of all this evil. But it's the same standard of justice that equally condemns all people, all of us, you, me, every man, woman, and child, because all of us, according to the word of God, sin against the one true God. We break his holy law. Think of this, the Ten Commandments. You lie all the time. I lie all the time. Like, people sin. We do. It happens. But as we're Christians, we know it's less and less. But we've all violated God's holy law. You know you have. I know I have. We all do wrong and evil. And hence, you and I are in a real need for real mercy because we have violated the real justice of the real living God. And mercy is what you and I need. And mercy is when God withholds what we rightfully deserve, which is his justice. And this is important to keep in mind because, again, real mercy does not exist if there's not really justice. Which is why, as most Orthodox Christians, we have to reject what's called universalism. Universalism says that everybody just goes to heaven. There's no real sense of judgment when we die. There's no idea of hell. If you ever have thought that or heard that, that's that idea. There's no real justice. Evil, but then again, the same people will say that, but then if you press the question, you're like, so is Mao, Stalin, and Hitler, are they going to face judgment? Oh, yeah, they're really bad people. But me and all the other normal people, we just automatically go to the be this blessing place and we die. Again, 
that's not really justice. It's absurd, and it doesn't line up with the Bible story, how you and I are born in sin, and you will sin, and you do sin, and you know it's true. We all do. We need this thing called God's mercy, or else we will be found guilty at the judgment. And thankfully, our just God king has revealed himself to not only be a God of great and perfect justice, he has also revealed himself to be a God of great and perfect mercy, which is our second preaching point. Not only is our God king just, our God king is merciful. Our God king, the king of the kingdom of God, is merciful. So the parable continues. The king calls for an account of his servants. And then he continues on with the judgment of the one servant who owed the king an infinite amount of money. It says 10,000 talents. The amount of the money is actually not the purpose. It's the reality is that it's totally unpayable by the person. He can never, ever pay this gross debt back to the king. So the idea is whatever it was, it's beyond his ability. He can never pay it back. And this is just like your and I's sin debt to the one true God, to the living God. You and I owe a debt because we violated the commandments. And guys, there are no good deeds that take away bad deeds. That's not real. That's not justice. I mean, think about it this way. If you put it in a silly idea like this, you know it's true. If I do something horrendous, if I go in and I kill your grandma, and then before I'm caught, give a whole bunch of money to charity, does that undo what I did to your grandma? Clearly not. And if we put it in simple ways, like even children can understand that, I'm like, guys, do good deeds actually take away bad deeds? If we step back, we can be pretty clear, like, well, no. It really doesn't undo what I did. It just maybe looks better, maybe makes me feel better. I guess it was still a good thing. But it doesn't take away the evil that I did. It doesn't undo. Good does not undo evil. So, guys, there's no scale mentality, because that's the way that people think. Like, there's these scales where... Good deeds on one side and bad deeds on the other. And as long as my good deeds outweigh even the bad deeds a little bit, God will only care about this. And let me ask you, does everybody think that their good deeds are more than their bad deeds? To a degree, most people will be acknowledged. Like Most of us suffer from good boy syndrome where they think they're okay. They think they're righteous. They think they're good. Very untrue in the scriptures. Your innocence with God is not determined by the amount of good deeds or righteous deeds and the amount of evil deeds you do. That's not real. Good deeds do not undo bad ones. There's no scales in the balance where God judges your life like that. It's simply that evil deeds are punished because they are evil and violate God's justice. Period. There's no other way to think about it. Evil deeds are punished because they're evil. They are opposite of God's nature, character, and holy law. That's it. And so what does a servant with this impossibly large debt do? The only thing he can do, he cannot pay his debt back. He knows he, he can't. So he implores or he seeks the mercy of the king. He begs him. He even says, I'll still pay you back, which we know is absurd because he knows he can't. But he begs the king. He says, have mercy on me, essentially. And the king, out of pity, it says, grants him mercy. He know, the king knows the servant can't pay him back. It's an infinite, it's an infinite amount of money. So the king has mercy and compassion simply because he chooses to. And this is because mercy, for it to be real mercy, has to be undeserved. Mercy is truly a voluntary act of the king. God does not owe you and does not owe me 
mercy any day of the week. And the day you think God owes you mercy is the day that you've crossed a great line in your heart and you misunderstand the nature of what mercy really is. It's undeserved. That's the point here. The guy can't pay the king. The king knows it. And even I'm sure the servant knows it because us, he already would have paid him back. He didn't deserve it. The king granted it. It's a beautiful thing. Our God king is a merciful king. And he loves to show mercy to his people because it's a part of his character. It's a part of who our God king really is. And the Bible reveals this time and time again, that God is merciful. It's not just in the story of the Bible. It spans out all the time. It keeps coming back up. God is good. God is merciful. Exodus 34, 5 through 7 is a famous scene where Moses, he turns to the Lord and he goes, God, show me your glory. Like, show me who you are. And God answers Moses' prayer. He says, you can't look at my face, Moses, but I'll still show you who I am. And so he, the Lord, it says in Exodus 34, it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses. And he stood there and it says, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord, which like kings do when they send a herald and they'd be like, the king is here. Here's the king. That's kind of this scene. God shows up to Moses and he's going to announce like a herald, like who he is. For who else is better to represent and tell who God is than himself? That's a cool thing to think about. God is like, no, no, you're going to be my spokesman, Moses. And if you're going to speak for me, you need to know who I am. So God comes and shows him who he is. And here is the description God gives of himself that was thousands of years ago. is still true today. The Lord says it passed before Moses and the Lord proclaimed saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's fascinating and encouraging that the first characteristics that God lists off about himself when he's revealing who he is to Moses, the first things he says about himself is that he's merciful and he's gracious. Before he says even about the judgment of sin near the end of that description, he says, the first thing, Moses, you got to know about me, I am a merciful God. I am a gracious God. That is how you and I need to primarily think about who our God, King Jesus, really is. He is primarily merciful. Of all the ways he could have listed this, of all the ways he could have revealed himself, the first thing he wants us to know is that he is merciful. And it's the same merciful God who performed the greatest act of mercy the universe has ever known through this thing called the gospel, the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of his own son, Jesus Christ, who faced God's justice on the cross for you and for me. Our sin, our law-breaking against God's holy word was placed upon the innocent son of God for us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus is God's perfect mercy for you and for me and the world. And it is through this Jesus God offers you and me and the world real 
forgiveness because mercy that isn't put into action also is not really mercy. So our God King acted and he made this thing called forgiveness really possible. And just like the servant who implored the king, who called out for that king's mercy, when you and I, when we cry out to this King Jesus, when we recognize who he is and what he's done on that old rugged cross, when we really seek his mercy and ask for that forgiveness, God says, I will give it to you. I will not withhold my mercy if you ask for it. That's the gospel. The worst of us, the best of us. Anyone who cries upon and calls out to this Jesus, wherever you're at today, if you call on this Jesus and recognize that he died for you, for the things you've done, the justice you deserve, God says if you do that, you can be made right with him. You really can be forgiven, what we call being saved. It's real. God King, our God King, grants us real forgiveness. And that is why we sing songs like the famous hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood. They lose all their guilty stains. Songs like that are the songs of the people of God. That's how we know our God, what he's done for us, removes the guilty stains. Church, this is why the gospel means good news. Because the good news of God's mercy is for desperate sinners like us to lose those guilty stains. And you too can have your ledger cleaned forever. Forever. And be right with God forever. And it's this very reason, the very reason, because you and I have received mercy, this is the very reason why you and I are required to show mercy our third preaching point. Our God King is just. Our God King is merciful. And our God King requires for us to also show mercy. God requires you and I to show the same mercy and forgiveness. And our parable this morning takes a tragic twist. After the good and merciful King forgives the servant of his unpayable debt, his infinite debt, that same servant then goes out and finds someone that owes him a debt also. And this debt that is owed him is meager. It's like, imagine if you had all the money in the world and you owed infinite amount of money and someone owed you like 20 bucks. Just the gap, like you can't even fathom that. If you took all the money that ever would be, could be, and say, and you owed that, and then this other person owed you like five or 20 bucks or whatever, that's what this kind of scenario is like. He owed him petty, small compared to his infinite amount. And then he demands repayment violently. It says like he grabbed him by the cloak or the throat and like choked him saying, pay me now. Like this is this absurd picture. You would even reading it, you say, no way, nobody could be like that. But we are, and it's true. And that's the tragedy of it. And when the debtor who owes him this little bit of money in comparison pleads and begs for mercy, the servant refuses to show it. He, the same words are used. I'll pay you. I'll pay you. I'll pay you. And he goes, no. No. And he throws him in jail and, until payment can be remade. And this, of course, comes back to the good king, the merciful king. Verse 32 picks up. It says, then his master, the king, summoned the servant and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
the great question. And church, this is the ultimate reason why we forgive. It's because you and I have been forgiven by our God King, and our God King then requires you and I to be like that to others. It's as simple as that. And the goal of forgiveness is not just to feel good or have emotional relief. In our current therapeutic culture, they've done a good job of trying to take the trappings of religion, the benefits of having a relationship with God, kicking God out of the picture, and then keeping the the relief of it. Everybody wants to not feel guilty anymore. Everybody wants to feel shame, doesn't want to feel shame anymore. And so our current therapeutic culture says forgiveness is, is mainly about you. You just need to forgive so you'll feel better, so you, so you won't feel bitter in your heart. And the main goal of a lot of therapy is just, just forgive so you'll feel better. Church, that's not the goal of forgiveness. That's not the reason why we do it. This misses the purpose of mercy and forgiveness, which is restoration, the reconciliation of a real relationship, two parties coming back together in harmony, just as the gospel reconciles you back to God so you can have a real relationship with the Father, creating a true and lasting relationship, your and I's forgiveness is supposed to be similar or have a similar relational effect with other people. We don't just forgive people so you can feel better. We forgive to restore broken relationships. And this is the heart of the gospel story, guys. I'll come back to it again. And, that's when that, and I really believe that's why forgiveness is so important to our God why you and I show it, demonstrate it, live it. So much so that to withhold mercy and forgiveness to others is what we would call anathema. Some of your Bibles translate this as accursed, but anytime you see that word anathema or accursed, it basically means it's something that puts you outside of God's grace, out of his forgiveness, out of his mercy. Paul uses it in Galatians a couple of times. He says, if anybody preaches to you a different gospel than what I've delivered to you, let that person be anathema. Let that person be accursed outside of God's grace. And this is true in the remainder of this parable because the rest of the parable tells us, it says, And in his anger the master, the king, delivered him, the unforgiving servant, to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. And then Jesus says, the final explanation, he goes, So also my heavenly father will do to y'all if you also do not forgive men their trespasses likewise. Think of how serious a warning that really is about this thing called forgiveness. And this is not new. Jesus used these same words in a couple chapters earlier on the Sermon on the Mount when he taught his disciples how to pray. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 10 through 14. You all know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus continues on after teaching them how to pray. He says this, right after the Lord's Prayer, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Serious warning. And since we see it multiple times in the same gospel, almost worded exactly the same way, should show us that Jesus probably regularly taught things like this, the necessity of his people forgiving one another. It's a necessity of the Christian life. Because church, to withhold mercy and forgiveness, it's a danger to your soul. 
And while I believe in eternal security and salvation, passages like these have to be taken seriously. They have to be. I mean, think of what that means for you and I if God stopped forgiving us our sins. I can't really even understand what that would look like, but he says it's true. God will stop forgiving you your sins if you do not forgive other people. It's one of those real warnings in Scripture that should be the stoplight in your mind and heart that says, take this seriously. I've used this illustration a bunch, but if you went camping, I'm not very outdoorsy, but if you went camping and you saw a sign that said, beware of bears, do you believe that there's possibility that there are real bears there? Or are you going to say, ah, that's just baloney, someone made that up, and just tricking us and putting a sign there? That's absurd, right? You should take to heart. And then what if you saw a bunch of scratch marks on the tree where the bears tear it up? Or whatever, like, you should take the warning seriously. Signs are important to take notice of. This is one of those moments. Therefore, as citizens of the kingdom, of, and this kingdom is a kingdom of mercy and forgiveness, we must embody the kingdom and show the same mercy and forgiveness and give it to others, grant it to others, as we ourselves have received. And we receive this through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the simplicity of it. Forgive because you've been forgiven. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. So now the question remains, how do we actually do forgiveness? How do we take this verse and then lay it to heart? So let's consider some ways, some ways we can apply this scripture on being merciful and forgiving. Uh, this one's not on your list, and these kind of came to me, this came to me late. But uh, I think this is important. You cannot forgive yourself. Again, we live in a therapeutic culture that wants to take the benefits of religion and the gospel, but secularize it to make people feel good. It is, if you watch any TV or movies, there's always going to be some episode where the hero lives a lifetime of regret or does something wrong, and then his psychic pal or somebody will come in when they're at their lowest moment and goes, concerning the past, you just need to forgive yourself. That is nonsense. You cannot forgive yourself at all. That is totally unchristian to its core. There is no sense in the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible where Paul the Apostle would be like, church, just forgive yourself. Like, that's outside the bounds of Christianity. It's one of those cultural beliefs that we foster that somehow you and I have the power of God to forgive ourselves of things we've done. Like, really think of the ramifications of what that means. You can forgive yourself? What does that even mean? Do you need Jesus anymore? Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. But we use it and you hear it all the time. It's totally unchristian. And again, people are trying to feel relief from their guilt, their shame, and their past. So, of course, their only conclusion is, well, I just got to forgive myself. Poof, it's done. I feel better. But that's what they really believe. It's tragic. It's not Christian. But I also think, if we're being generous, when I hear a lot of people use that phrase, especially in church world sometimes, when people use that phrase, like, I just need to forgive myself, and they're Christian, it's because they're struggling embracing the gospel, that our merciful God really forgives them. So when they say it, and you really kind of probe the question, like, what do you mean when you say that? They're like, well, I'm trying to, like, just not feel bad about what I've done in the past in my Christian life. And I'm like, then, well, think about this. You can't forgive yourself, but you can be forgiven. So stop with that language, and just embrace the gospel more. Embrace the gospel more. When God promises you and me, church, that your sins are as far from the east and the west, when God promises you, Christian, that he does not remember the things you've done, 
Not that God forgets, but he chooses to let it go because it's been paid for by his son. When he describes you as holy, blameless, righteous, just, that's the gospel hope that we have. So it's not that you need to forgive yourself. You just need to lay hold tighter on Jesus and let his word tell you you are forgiven. That's why we celebrate communion every week. That's the time to remember you, Christian, are really forgiven of the evil you've done. And the evil one will always do a good job of poking you at the right time, whispering in your ear and reminding you of how awful the sinner and failure you really are. That is why hearing the word of God and taking communion regularly is so important to the Christian life because it reminds us of the gospel. You have been forgiven. That is like sometimes we don't let that sink in. A holy God that you owe your life to and you're guilty before says, I forgive you and you can be with me forever. And then when Paul says things like there's nothing in this present world, no depth, nor height, nor light, nor darkness, that type of stuff that can ever separate you from the love of God, do you believe that? So when you linger on the past, and again, sometimes our past, it's hard to escape. Paul the apostle murdered Christians and will tell you, I'm the worst sinner. And he's the same guy that says, but I preach Christ crucified and risen from the dead so you can have that same hope. If God can save me and give me a good conscience before him and he doesn't remember the crimes of my past anymore, can he do that for you? That's the Christian hope. So when you feel miserable and Satan pokes your heart to remind you of the evil of your past or maybe what you even did yesterday or maybe what you did before you came into church, Lay hold of the gospel promise. You're a child of God and you are forgiven. Truly forgiven. Meditate on that. Declare it to yourself regularly because you can't forgive yourself. You can only receive God's mercy. Two, application two. Overlooking minor offenses is necessary. What I like to call, and scripture talks about forbearance, Scripture in the New Testament regularly encourages Christians to do things like bear with one another in love or that love will cover a multitude of sins. You know, we will offend one another in word and deed all the time. I, we know we do. I am sure I've said things in the pulpit that has made someone uncomfortable. I'm sure you've said things to people in church that have hurt their feelings. And sometimes it's not on purpose. Sometimes it's just maybe you were grumpy and having a bad day or they were and they were just rubbing you the wrong way. Like we offend each other all the time all the time. And sometimes though, I say this loosely, it's not really, it's not always a sin thing. Sometimes it's personality clashes. Sometimes we're just, you ever been hangry before? You know, it's not a good excuse for why to be grumpy and to treat people wrong. Is it still sin? Yeah. But I mean, it's like, it's down here, right? And if you're married with kids and wives or husbands, like, you know, when we're having bad days and you know, it's like, hey, they're having a bad day. I just need to show some grace and leave them alone. As Christians, we're called to overlook many offenses. Because if every time we got offended by one another, if we took our ball home and said, I'm quitting the church because you said something, something, or you didn't invite me to your party, or you didn't think about me, or I didn't get a card in the mail, or you didn't text or call me back, whatever, fill in the blank, man, the church is going to deplete pretty fast. And so as an act of maturity and growth in Christ to show grace towards one another, overlook the small things. Let it go. There are a bunch of small things that are going to happen in your church life or in your private life. You just need to let go. Forbearance. It's when I don't want to scale sins between big sins and little sins, but it's one thing being 
sharp and snarky in your attitude because you're having a bad day to then like lying about someone, you know? So let go of the little things. Forbear one another because we're going to rub each other the wrong way the rest of our lives. But the cool thing is in heaven, we're going to be besties forever. So don't worry about that. Let the small things go. But that's hard because the small things, if they're not let go, they become the big things. And so I think it takes wisdom to discern between when something is small and when something is big. If someone's having a bad attitude, a bad day, they rub you the wrong way, let it go. Show some grace. But there are times in our Christian walk when we greatly offend someone, it can't be let go because it would violate God's justice. It would be wrong to let said thing go. And so how do you deal with that? Well, first, you got to ask God for help to forgive even when you don't want to. We just read the Lord's Prayer. He says, forgive the people of their sins or their debts. Is that forgive those who sin against me and forgive me, Lord? Pray for God's help because I believe in your flesh you will not want to be merciful or show forgiveness. I don't think it's in us naturally to be forgiving. I don't think so at all. We need God's help to show the grace he's given us to others. Pray for help to forgive. But then we have to say, what does that process of forgiveness actually looks like? Because sometimes we teach, and I think there's some merit to it, that there is this idea of where we have to have universal, unconditional forgiveness for all people of all places. Like, no matter how bad they hurt you, before you even talk, whatever, you just need to forgive them. I think that's less normal in Scripture than the methods God has given us to deal with when we're sinned against, especially amongst church folk, amongst other Christians. In fact, God even lays it out in Scripture how you and I are to deal when fellow Christians, especially in our religious community, how we're to relate with one another when we actually sin, the big sin that we can't just forbear. It's like a serious thing. Like If you lie about me or I lie about you and it's, it's damaging, we have to confront that. Or you're gossiping about someone relentlessly. We have to confront that. Things like that. So what does that look like? How do we deal with, how do we forgive? What's the process look like? And God tells us what this looks like in the same chapter, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. He says, uh, the process looks like this. First off, when you're sinned against greatly, again, when it's not something you can forbear, when it's something that you're just like, man, I have to deal with this. Here's what it looks like. First off, you need to go to the brother who sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's going to remain kind of a private matter at first. And it says, and if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So this act of reconciliation, this act of extending mercy, this act of forgiveness and action between fellow Christians begins when you're wronged, you go to that person. Do not just sweep it under the rug when it's the offenses that have to be dealt with. Do not, don't let it go. It's not right to let it go. You have to engage that person. Because if we love one another, we'll want to obey the scripture that says we have to do these things. Engage your brother or sister that offended you in a real way. Go talk to them. It starts with that. Go and talk to them. And he says, and if you win your brother or sister over, great. If they recognize like, oh man, you're right. What I did, that was wrong. I'm, I sincerely am sorry for that. Please forgive me then that's the end of the case, right? You have to engage one another. And Jesus says that. He says in Luke 17, 3 and 4, a similar passage. He goes, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. 
It's like it's demanded of Christians that we have to forgive each other. But it's contingent upon repentance. Because what if you go to that brother or sister, you're engaging them, and you're like, in all sincerity, you're coming in your private meeting, and you're like, you did this? It, it really hurt me. It was sin. It was wrong. And they look at you and say, buzz off. I wasn't wrong. Get out of here. Don't come back to my house. What do you do then? They're not acknowledging this offense. They're not acknowledging the sin. That happens. Because I ask you, can you really forgive someone who doesn't want to repent or doesn't think they're wrong? Like, that's a good question. So Jesus gives us more of this process. He goes, after you meet with this individual personally, you've confronted them in a loving way. You brought up the offense. If they do not listen to you, he says this, verse 16 in Matthew chapter 18. He says, but if the brother does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may establish by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's describing this escalation. So after this period of time when you've engaged the person that did wrong, or if you are being engaged for sinning, real things, like the things that can't be let go, the real crimes against one another. He says, if they're not really in receiving you, he goes, you got to come back eventually. It's not a one and done try and be like, oh, well, I guess they just don't want to repent. He goes, no, you have to keep engaging. And I tell you, if you've ever had to do this, it is the worst, it's not fun. This is the most unfun thing to do in our church relationships is confront one another of real sin. So he says, you need to go back and bring a couple witnesses along and usually it's elders or pastors of the church, uh, and we have to confront that person again. And then it has to become like a church matter. It gets escalates. It gets bigger because you're not repenting. You're not admitting the evil and wrong that you did. And these other witnesses can also be good mediators. They can help them, the two sides, come together. It's, it's a good thing because sometimes when two parties can't resolve their conflict, a third party is very helpful. They can help talk it down. They can help reconcile and be a mediator. That's, that's a good thing. So that's the second level. If they don't receive your first witness, come back with some mediators. Try again. Because if we love that person, we will want to reconcile the relationship. It's important. But what happens then? What happens if after this, uh, these extra times and some time goes on and they're still not admitting, like, I know you lied about me. They were there. They heard it. It was publicly, you said it, you said this about me, fill in the blank, whatever. And you're still just going to say, no, it's a lie that we're just all against you and make you just get, that happens. People get defensive about their sin. They don't like admitting wrongdoing. And what happens if they even reject you and now your other witnesses? What do you do? Jesus tells us. He says, if after all this, the brother refuses to listen to them, meaning the group and the mediators and the party, he goes, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him to be as to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Meaning not that you treat them like garbage. means that you consider them that maybe they're just not saved. Maybe they're outside the grace of God and that's why they can't reconcile with you. Maybe they don't have the Holy Spirit that can admit wrong and be humble in humility. He's basically saying, look at this person as if they're not Christian. Because they're demonstrating they're not Christian with the way they're not repenting. This is, again, I've been through this a couple times as a pastor. It's the worst. The worst. And usually, I've never personally, I've never experienced it get this far because usually just take, people will take their ball home and say, I'm done with church. I'm done with you all. Get out of my life. You can't come and tell me I'm sinning. And I'm like, well, if that's, that's your reaction, okay. But we were obedient to God. You can't control other people, what they'll respond. But we do have a responsibility 
when real sin happens in the church, when you're really sinned against or you really sin against another, we have to do stuff like this because it demonstrates our obedience and love for God and our true love for one another to reconcile real relationships. It's not just to say, see, I'm right, you're wrong. It's because we love one another and want to be together and be church together. When Jesus says, when you love one another, the world will know, like, that's how you're my disciples. This is that type of stuff. We have to do it. It's extreme. This is like the extreme case, but it happens. And this process, guys, is how God's way of we deal with conflict. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And those people, if they repent, will respect you even more for doing so. And you'll respect them more for being honest to repent. This builds Christian relationship when we do it like that. It's important. So guys, it's not really just about you and me. It's about unity of the church and God's glory. Why we do this stuff. And last bit of application. I've noticed this week, and it's been interesting to me. I've never really noticed it before, but a lot of the forgiveness passages you're going to read in the New Testament and the Bible in general are about how God's people are to forgive and be in relationship with one another. I cannot find any passages that talk about forgiveness that deal with non-Christians. Not directly. Paul will say, forgive one another, like in Ephesians. He'll say, forgive one another in Christ as you've been forgiven. Like, that comes up a lot in Paul's letters to the churches. You don't see a lot of scripture that says how you and I are to forgive and interact with non-Christians. I think the process is pretty same, but think about this. Can I bring, like, a lost friend in front of the church? Like, that's not real, right? That doesn't happen. So I would say it's similar in principle. Confront, be honest, be loving, be careful. And when they're willing to repent, forgive. Because imagine if you have an unsafe spouse and they really hurt you. They're not Christian, but they come to you and then honestly they're like, hey, you know, I really wronged you. That was, forgive me. Can you honestly say, well, the scripture doesn't specifically say that I don't have to forgive you because you're not Christian. Like that would be stupid. Like that's absurd, right? Clearly you need to forgive them as you've been forgiven in Christ. I think in principle, it's almost the same. But think of how powerful that is when people who don't know Jesus can violate our mind and conscience heart so bad and you can look at them and still say, I forgive you. That demonstrates the gospel. That's a powerful witness. That's a big deal. We live in an unforgiving world. We live in a world that likes to see people crushed. Watch any political debate. You know, we say we like underdog stories, but really, we like watching people being crushed. Like, the world does. They enjoy that. They, watch, they like watching people fall. And we're not to be like that. So when your lost friends or family or whatever, see your gentleness, see your forgiving spirit, they, they encounter that. Man, that's a powerful witness of the gospel. Think of how many times martyrdom demonstrates that. When that person who's going to cut your head off because you love Jesus and you can look at them. Now, you can't really forgive them of their sin, but your heart posture can be right. And you're like, I'm going to choose to forgive you because you're killing me now and we're never going to have a chance to reconcile after this. So I'm going to pre-forgive you right now. Think how powerful that is. Because the kingdom of God is of mercy and forgiveness and reconciles real relationships. So we're coming to a close now. A lot to think about. But the charge is real. God says, if you do not forgive, his mercy will be withheld from you. Are there people in your life that you need to make a call to today? 
you have a brother or sister maybe you haven't talked to in years, and even if you say you forgive them, but you don't really have a reconciliation of relationship, if you can't actually be in the same room or go to family dinners anymore or whatever, like, is that really forgiveness then? Is that really that reconciled relationship? Take the next step and keep engaging. Be at peace with all men as much as possible. Forgive because you've been forgiven. And then if you wrong someone, be quick to seek forgiveness from that person. Accept your responsibility for what you've done and implore them for that forgiveness because we all sin against each other. It's going to keep happening. But God has given us the Holy Spirit and his word and the ability through these things to forgive and really be forgiven. So may the words never come out of your mouth, I will never forgive that or I'll never forgive blank. Not Christian. Because our great and good and forgiving and just and merciful God can forgive anything. And even those who can hurt us the worst, maybe some of you have had a family member murdered. How do we deal with that? Real stuff like that. How do we then actually then do that act of forgiveness for those who can do the worst crimes? Even Jesus, when he hung on the cross, knowing that he had the power to forgive because through the gospels, when he forgives people, the Pharisees say, who can forgive but God alone? Jesus doesn't look at them directly and say, I forgive you. He calls out to his heavenly father and basically says, God, forgive them, making forgiveness possible for all of us because Jesus was crucified because of you and me and he requires us to be like that. So let's pray. Take some time at the altar, seat down here. Pray for God's help. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we love you. Help us love you like you command by forgiving others even when we don't want to. Help us forgive and go through the process of confrontation. It's not fun to confront a fellow Christian, but we know it's necessary. And help us forbear when it's the small things, knowing that, you know, we all have bad days and some of the small things we just need to let it go. Give us wisdom to see the difference. Give us a heart to love our fellow believer and help us be a powerful gospel witness of forgiveness to those outside of the church when they wrong us greatly or we wrong them, which happens. Help us be quick to seek reconciliation by being merciful and forgiving. And this is not just to make us feel better. It's for your glory and your name's sake to show the fame of the Son of God and how the gospel is real and it really reconciles us to you. Work on our hearts now. In Christ's name we pray.